I invite you to turn in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians, to chapter 5. Give you a moment to turn there. Now, later this evening, Lord willing, we're going to be continuing through a series looking at the thought life of Christian disciples. The thought life of Christian disciples, and in particular, focusing on Philippians 4.8, where it says that we are to think on whatever is true. What does that mean? But this morning, we've been making our way through Thessalonians. We are now in chapter 5, and we've been seeing that chapter 5 is full of very brief exhortations. Children, an exhortation is simply a combination of instruction and encouragement, or a command combined with encouragement. Now, we have to bear in mind, when the apostle Paul was instructing this church, these are not simply the opinions of a religious guru or some teacher. He's speaking with the authority vested in him by Jesus Christ. And that should shift somewhat how we listen, of course. Through the writings of the scriptures, we hear the voice of Christ. And that means that even where these exhortations are very brief, they are potent with meaning and implications for our lives. With that in mind, let's hear together the words of 19, verse 19, through 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's ask the Lord to bless us in our hearing and responding. Our Heavenly Father, we desire this morning that you would speak in power. You have spoken. You've commended these things to the canon of Scripture. But we desire that your Holy Spirit would work within us to apply these things and that we would be softened like wax in the sunshine, not like clay becoming harder, but to become more and more desirous to serve you, to glorify you. For in this is joy, and this is the fulfillment of our purpose. We ask for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. The word quench, which is a key idea in this passage, means to stifle or to diminish something. To stifle or to diminish something. And in the context here, it's a warning about quenching The Spirit. Now, in one sense, the Spirit is unquenchable. He cannot be diminished in himself. He cannot be made less than what he is. And where God has decreed a thing to come to pass, he is irresistible. If we didn't believe that, we would have no hope. We believe that the Holy Spirit overcomes all of the resistance that God's people have to putting faith in Christ. And yet, on the other hand, the scripture does speak at times of resisting the Holy Spirit. For instance, Acts chapter 7, Paul is speaking to certain Jewish opponents. And in verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, you constantly resist the Holy Spirit. Well, what does he mean? There, to quench the Spirit means to stifle or to resist his revealed will. Or his felt influence, where he's laying a certain amount of conviction in you, and yet you push back against it. 
And here in our passage, the Lord through Paul is setting before you a danger that any of us would quench, diminish, stifle, resist the Spirit's work through certain prophecies. Because in doing so, you resist Christ himself. There is one God, Father, Son, Spirit, share one desire. To resist the Spirit is to resist the will of Christ, and the will of Christ for you is always for your benefit. So the Lord calls us not to quench the Spirit with regard to certain prophecies. Now, as we look through this passage, we're going to look at it under three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But first, basically, they are these. We need to gather, first of all, to identify what sort of prophecies are in view. If you don't grasp that, this passage is not going to make very much sense. But then the second and the third point have to do with our response. Paul is correcting two poor responses to these prophecies. On the one hand, people despise them, and perhaps, to some degree, you have despised them. On the other hand, there's the need to test them. And maybe that's the side that you deal more with, this need to test them, to put them to scrutiny. And so these are the general ideas that we're going to look at this morning. But first, look at me at verse 19, where it says, Do not despise prophecies. This is our first major idea, prophecies. What is meant here? What is the idea of prophecies? And I wonder to you what comes to mind. The term that's used in the original language here is a term that has a variety of meanings. English has a variety of meanings for certain words, too. Think of the word dog. That can be canine, or that can be a frankfurter. Words sometimes have a variety of meanings. You need to know the context. How is it used? Perhaps the most familiar use of the word prophecy among Christians is to think of the scriptures, the canonical books of the Bible themselves. The word canon means a rule, something that norms our life, our judgments, our beliefs, our behavior. And the scriptures are sometimes described as prophecies, of course. For instance, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. They're not subject to just your truth and my truth, how we interpret the Bible. They have a meaning. They came from the Lord. He knows what they mean, even if at times we struggle to know what they mean. But I submit to you, I don't believe that's the primary emphasis of Paul in this passage when he says, do not despise prophecies. Had he intended the canonical writings which existed at that point, he certainly would have delivered a stronger rebuke if they were despising them. There's no question, there's no place for believers to despise the scriptures themselves. But of course we should bear in mind not every utterance which comes extraordinarily from the Holy Spirit is canonical, is intended to become a part of the Bible or to norm all of our life and beliefs. This is the second way that it's sometimes used, simply to describe revelations from God that are extraordinary and come immediately, directly, from the Holy Spirit to a person. There's a very famous example of this in the Old Testament. There's a King Saul. Saul is the first of Israel's kings. And as a way of demonstrating, in a sense, how he is a forerunner of Christ, the true king, who is full of the Holy Spirit and power, the Holy Spirit pours out upon Saul the gift 
of prophecy temporarily. And we find that suddenly he's prophesying and it comes to be a kind of proverb. Is Saul among the prophets? Because it seems so unexpected, so unlike Paul that, or Saul that he would prophesy. And yet none of the things he prophesied are actually recorded in Scripture for us. Not every extraordinary revelation from God is canonical. There are some instances of this in the New Testament as well. Look with me at Acts chapter 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there. We'll look at two places in Acts. Both of them involve a man named Agabus, who's not a man listed among the apostles. He is, for all practical purposes, just one of the Christians. And yet the Holy Spirit, on several occasions, gives him the ability to prophesy. Acts chapter 11, verse 28. says, And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Luke now looking back and seeing that it was indeed fulfilled. Now look with me at Acts chapter 21, verse 8. Luke, again speaking, the author of Acts, in Acts 21, verse 8 says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. From these and other examples, there is no question that under the new covenant, after the time of Christ, the Holy Spirit has, in certain instances, poured out extraordinary gifting, including prophecies. Direct revelations concerning future events or simply teachings. If that is what Paul has primarily in view here, then his point is pretty simple. Don't reject every claim out of hand, but you need to test them. And that applies today. If somebody comes and they claim that God has given them some special revelation, I know that some of us have heard People make such a claim, and perhaps some of us have thought that we were the recipients of such revelation. Then the lesson is very simple. It must be put to the test. Nothing can just be assumed true. We'll come back a little bit later to how we put those things to the test. But I would advise you all the same. The tradition that this church stands in, the Reformed tradition, together with the Lutheran tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, Basically, all of the confessional Protestant tradition going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years has more or less been agreement. Most pastors, most theologians have agreed on something called cessationism. I want to be clear. Cessationism is not the belief that the Holy Spirit ceased to work. 
but specifically that at certain periods for God's own purpose, he chooses to cease to give certain kinds of gifts. From the time of the book of Malachi all the way till the time of Jesus, several centuries, he ceased to raise up prophets. And so that's not unheard of. That's not inconsistent with what God has done in the past. Now, why do some people believe that following the time of the apostles, that the Holy Spirit ceased to give certain extraordinary gifts, gifts like speaking unlearned tongues, gifts like speaking prophetic words of foreknowledge, or being able to heal upon command? We do believe God heals. Why else are we praying so much? But the ability to say, be healed, Most Protestants have understood those gifts to have ceased from the generation of the apostles. Now, why? It is because they're stodgy and they do not like the spirit. No, that's not why. Although there was a time when I thought that was why. I was not always reformed. I thought, well, they're against the spirit. They've put God in a box. The question is, has God placed his own self, as it were, into a certain purpose? Has he committed himself in some way? So where is that idea coming from? Several places, but, and I don't ask you to turn there, but I submit it for your study to do as the Bereans. Acts chapter 8 describes certain Samaritans who had come to faith. People living in Samaria had come to faith. They had been baptized. They were believers upon Jesus Christ. We have no reason to doubt that they knew the Lord. And yet, it says that they had not yet received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in order as the Spirit apportioned to each one different gifts in order to speak in tongues or to prophesy or to heal. Rather, it says in Acts chapter 8 that they could not receive the outpouring unless an apostle was sent physically into their presence. And so Peter is dispatched over to them. Only when an apostle is present do they then receive these extraordinary gifts. And this is important. We understand then that the purpose of those gifts was not simply to dazzle, but it was to establish in a miraculous way the authority which Christ had invested in his apostles to lay a foundation for the church until the time when the canon of scripture would be complete. And so with the passing of the generation of the apostles would eventually pass those who had stood in their presence and had received these gifts. Augustine, the very famous pastor and theologian who lives in the 3rd and 4th centuries, states that in his time that such gifts had long since ceased to be given. So even then, they felt that it had been in the past. Why do I say that? I say that simply to advise you. Ordinarily, if somebody told me that they had received a direct revelation from God, I am inclined to doubt. I'm convinced you should as well, though I can't be dogmatic. I am inclined to doubt to the point of closer to 0% than 1. I don't say that to be funny. I say that as a caution to you. On the other hand, notice I didn't say, I am certain. (laughs) Maybe someone else is. But there is a danger in despising and saying, God cannot possibly and... But even if somebody did say that they had such a revelation, all we can do is test. As we'll come to see, the Lord says in 2 Timothy that the scriptures are sufficient 
for all godliness. So whatever they received was not essential to godliness. With that in mind, I am persuaded that there is a third sense of this word, and it is the one that Paul primarily has in mind. This same word, prophecies, is used both in the Bible and outside of the Bible in a different way, a third way. And it's used to describe interpreting divine revelation. Interpreting divine revelation because if you are accurately interpreting it, it automatically has a weight of authority. Rightly interpreting God's will is automatically authoritative. And so basically this would refer to preaching or instruction of a religious nature or one which stands to impact our beliefs about God and his will for us. This is the way that it was used, for instance, in a book written a long time ago by William Perkins, one of the major influences upon the English Reformation and then the Dutch Latter Reformation. William Perkins wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying. You too can pick up that book and learn how to prophesy. But it's actually a book about preaching, homiletical method and exegetical method, The Art of Prophesying. So he's using it in that sense. This seems to best match what we encounter in Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. When he goes there, the people of the town overall, you know there were some who received his message, but overall they so despised what this man was saying that he had to flee for his life out of there. And then the very next place he goes, according to Acts, is another town, Berea, and it says that in that town they were more noble. They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. They put it to the test. And so I'd submit to you that the primary sense of what Paul is getting at here, what the Holy Spirit is getting at, has to do with instruction, teaching, preaching that claims to rightly interpret God's will. Go back to our text, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. The danger then is how we would relate to any kind of communication that claims divine authority, whether it claims to be indirect or whether it claims to be simply teaching. This brings us to our second key idea, the danger of despising them. Look in verse 20. God's will for you, do not despise prophecies. Now, the word despise here means basically to regard something as having little or no value. You may demonstrate that outwardly, or it can just be in your heart, an attitude. But it's to treat something as having little or no value. Why would Paul need to give this instruction to the Thessalonians? We read elsewhere in this book, many months ago we came to where it says that when they heard Paul preaching, they received it as it truly is, as the word of God and not of man. Why does he need to tell them then not to despise prophecies? Probably for most of the same reasons that we need to be told that too. For instance, the church commonly deals with preachers who are of a low caliber and teachers who are not particularly impressive in the way that the world expects. How do you follow up Paul and Silas and Timothy? These men with extraordinary gifts literally world and culture 
earth-shattering and overturning gifts, who had decades of teaching under their belt, and then they appoint a couple elders in Thessalonica and encourage the church to attend regularly at hearing the word. That is a tall order. C.S. Lewis confessed in one of his writings that he struggled to attend worship. He struggled to attend worship because of the mediocrity of the sermons and the sense he had that they were not terribly well prepared. But when you are a C.S. Lewis, must all sermons seem mediocre? And yet he did discipline himself to go. But that is one of the reasons why people are tempted to treat a thing as though it is of little worth and value. I'm not saying it's worthless, but I just, I'd rather read a book. I'd rather stay home and, and listen to that teacher and not the one that God has providentially placed in my midst. Perhaps a second reason is that Paul knew eventually they would be burned. Maybe you've been burned by a teacher, an instructor, a pastor who uses and abuses people or who has made claims that do not come to pass. In the 1980s, there was a whole mess of pastors who were asserting that, these are not in Reformed churches, though we have our own problems, uh, asserting that Jesus Christ was going to return in 1988. And a man wrote a very popular book, sold scads of copies, 88 Reasons Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1988. And then he updated it, 89 Reasons Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1989. And after that, a multitude of people acknowledged that the reason they stopped attending church was because of that. Sometimes Christians are burned at what they perceive in the preaching and instruction of teachers, and so they adopt a me-and-my-Bible mentality, not acknowledging that Christ instituted the offices of the church. He said and set the standard, elders shall be able to teach. His Holy Spirit gives the gift of teaching. And so to hear the word is never simply a natural thing. It's a means of grace through which his spirit works. And so that's the third reason why sometimes people despise the word. It's simply they set a low value on it. They look at it as natural, just this guy's opinion, rather than approaching it, believing God speaks to us through this. Now, what does it actually look like practically when someone despises the word? I say these things in parts that you can examine your own heart, even as I must. Most minimally, despite is shown towards the word when we tune out most or all of a sermon. Notice I didn't say any. We are human. And the idea of paying attention through 30 or more minutes of any human being talking is a tall order, especially if you have children. But there should be a desire and an attempt to pay attention when God is ministering through his servants. So if you are tuning out most or all of sermons regularly, and I'm not talking once one morning either. Everybody has their days. Things go wildly wrong sometimes. But if this is your habit, then the Holy Spirit does speak to you. Repent. Hear my voice. Jesus says in John chapter 18, All those who know me, listen to me. More grievously, it looks like intentional non-attendance, prolonged non-attendance upon the word. And it's been the case in many churches traditionally that 
people would eventually only come on those days when they had the sacraments. And if the church only had the sacraments once a year, as sometimes in the Middle Ages it was, then they'd come to church once a year and have it that way. But regular non-attendance says something. It's saying, I don't believe and expect that God will speak through this. Most grievously is to actively suppress preaching, teaching, and instruction. No, I'm not talking about unbelievers suppressing teaching, preaching, instruction. I'm talking about from within. And that has occurred throughout church history as well, and it's happening today in many churches. Throughout church history, there's a period of about 700 years where partly related to the failure of the church to educate its ministers, people clamored for shorter and shorter sermons. They were just so bad. Please don't give them to us. Let them become five-minute homilies. Now, there may be a place for those. But the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the apostles, the ministry of the prophets, all signify to us that what is ordinary is an exposition of the word on a regular basis. These signs and seals derive their authority and efficacy by the Spirit through the preaching of the word. Without the word, they are not a sacrament for us. They are always united together in the declaration of the gospel. It's happening in churches today in a whole variety of ways. Again, sometimes it's simply shorten it, please, until it ceases to exist. On the other hand, churches in the town that I grew up in, I remember one that was growing massively in size. They simply did away with preaching once a month, and instead they'd replace it with a long song service on the Lord's Day or with a Super Bowl party or with a Christian comedian. They simply didn't have the preaching every week. Each of these ways, I believe, are ways that churches despise and what we need to guard against, whether simply in our heart or in the way that the leadership especially approaches the word. And so I compel you, I urge you, consider the place Christ gives to his word. Listen to what Paul tells Titus in Titus 2.15. Titus was a pastor, and Paul tells him, concerning the word, declare these things, exhort Rebuke with all authority. Let no one discard you or disregard you. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The word has an authority that transcends the minister of the word. And when we understand that these are spiritual gifts and the ordinary means by which God brings salvation to the nations, we should desire the word. There is an opposite extreme that we can fall to, and it's our third, our final heading. You see in verse 21, it says, test everything. The word test here means to examine it for purity, to examine it for quality and value. Some of the metaphors of this used in scripture, for instance, to put metal into a crucible, to heat it up, and to let it separate out by weight. That which is of passing value is taken off, discarded. That which is gold and silver remains. We have a duty to test. Why does Paul need to tell them to test everything? I know that some of you don't need that encouragement. You are, you know, you're a plane flying with its radar in every direction. You are on guard. You've been burned before, and now you're actually probably on the opposite end. You need to be more receptive. But on the other hand, 
Just as now, then, perhaps some of these Christians were simply too trustful. And yet Jesus warned, wolves shall come in, devouring the flock. He wasn't lying. And there's the need not simply to hope all things, as it says in 1 Corinthians, but also to be wise as serpents. Sometimes that's a byproduct of familiarity. I've known that pastor for so long, years, decades. And so we have an implicit trust. To an extent, that kind of gravitas is a good thing. But at the end of the day, everything must be scrutinized. And I warn you here, I don't say this because I want you to suddenly be overly suspicious of me or any other pastor, but it's a fact. Pastors, teachers, they change too. And they change sometimes more than others because they're constantly wrestling with theology. And so there needs to be a regular examination, a certain, and this is one of the primary roles of the elders, not to just make sure things happen at the right time and no one does anything embarrassing during the service. I think God our elders have not minimized it to that thought, but to keep a close watch on the word. And that means that the elders too need to know theology. The elders need to be paragons in the church of the main principles. It doesn't mean that they are theologians who has time, not even pastors really, have time to be dedicated theologians of one idea. But they must know the central things. And then finally, because our sinful nature craves error and inclines us to that which is false. 2 Timothy chapter 4 Paul warns Pastor Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Is this not sadly the history of so much of the church? Is it not sadly some of our own experience in churches from which we've come? Is it not sadly the story of some churches in practically every city in America? But it's not because those people were worse than us. It's because in every one of us, there is a fleshly craving that must be resisted to have teaching that simply doesn't shine light on the faults that we personally love. And therefore, to prefer pastors who don't do that. How then are we to test things? There is only one standard. I say something which I trust is known to you. It's scripture. It's not intuition. Yours is off and so is mine. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Where it says all scripture is breathed out, think of respiration, inspired. It's that same root word. God, through human means, gave us a reliable standard. And this relates to our belief in something called perspicuity. It's an incredibly uh, unfamiliar word that just means that something is simple and clear. So it At least remember, it's that one that's not clear that means the Bible is. Perspicuity. Protestants have taught for hundreds of years the Bible is sufficiently clear on everything essential. If you read enough of the scripture, you'll get to the clear parts. And you let those form your judgment. 
Combined with that, every one of us, I am persuaded, should be familiar with the three forms of unity, the doctrinal standards that this church confesses together with thousands of churches throughout hundreds and hundreds of years to be faithful summaries of the Bible. As a way of getting a foothold on what does the Bible teach, make it a regular part of reading them in your life in order that you might be able to test all things. And so God's will for you in this passage is very clear. He does not want you to stifle the means by which Christ ministers himself to you. He does not want you to stifle the voice by which you are drawn into conformity with the Lord and are equipped. He does not want you inadvertently or intentionally to stifle the work, the ministry of the gospel of salvation. And so I want to exhort you by way of conclusion very practically in just a few ways. The first, make it a matter of prayer, whether on Saturdays in particular as you're going to bed or on Sunday morning, especially if you have a family and you're going to have some kind of breakfast together. Make it a matter of asking the Lord to give you a hunger as well for the word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, if you look there, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, You received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so pray, God, give me a hunger to listen and then work in me. And then trust that he's going to. Sometimes I see people have a habit, I think it's a good habit, of doing that immediately before service, taking a moment to sit down and to pray. Also, I would encourage you, not everyone needs this to the same extent, but perhaps adjust your expectation of preaching and preachers. Adjust your expectation of preaching and preachers in terms of being frustrated at the low caliber sometimes of a minister or a particular sermon. The word itself describes how the Lord uses weak vessels. Weak vessels. And to remember the purpose of preaching. It is not foremost, and everybody has their own proclivities, their tastes. It is not foremost a theological lecture. And some pastors bend more in that direction, others don't. But it's not foremost a theological lecture, nor is it therapy, giving you simply tools for self-help. It's not primarily meant for inspiration, as the world wants speeches that inspire them. It's certainly not meant as entertainment. Though Jesus himself was fairly entertaining quite a bit of the time. There can be a sweetness in the preaching But the substance is not sugar. We have to be asking for the word to be what God intended it to be, which is milk and meat, the proclamation of God's holiness, his grace, his will for you in Jesus Christ. That is the primary purpose, to exalt who God is publicly and through the revelation of who he is for us to be transformed in that and to approach it that way. Also, it means that we should consider how best we can invest in more skilled ministers of the word. Sometimes they are poor because that's all they've got. Sometimes they are poor because that's all they have gotten. 
And so our church needs to be always considering what is our role in raising up the next generation of ministers and providing them with tools, feedback, internships, scholarships. I'm not saying we have to do any one of those in particular, but we have to consider them. We get what we invest by and large because God works through means. Finally, to emphasize and support better preparation from pastors and teachers. It's not an indictment on this church, but this is for all churches. The congregation itself will receive better preaching when they expect the pastor to prepare, to prepare. You cannot expect the pastor to be moving mountains of admin and events unless he's going to bring a molehill of spiritual depth. Because we're not geniuses. We're not. We're like you. We've just been set aside. We have certain gifts that maybe relate to When I think of teaching, it's particularly the gift to organize information. But the information itself, you get it the same way anybody else gets it, by digging in. And that takes time. And you can't give of the spiritual element if you yourself are not experiencing that. Preaching is not just information exchange. It is foremost a communion in the words of God. And if the pastor himself does not go atop the mountain, he is going to bring down something of very little value. Doesn't mean the pastor has to disappear forever. Jesus himself spends quite a lot of time with people. But he also goes off into the wilderness at times to pray, to be with the Lord. What is the whole purpose? This, and then we pray. Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, that is Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. May God help us to test but not to despise his word, knowing that it is the means by which we receive Christ and maturity in him. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for drawing us here in your purpose And we ask that you would apply these things to us, that they would shape and transform us. If in anything your minister has spoken in error, we pray for protection and understanding. But in all which accords with your word, we pray that you would humble us to receive and to delight in the truth. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.